Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm here in the studio with Ken and Ahmad, and we're happy to be recording a special session for NEJM Knowledge Plus. In today's episode, we will focus on some of the challenges that clinicians experience when managing chronic pain with opioids. The module on pain management and opioids is freely available at knowledgeplus.nejm.org. In today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Daniel Alford and our own education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnevik, to discuss how clinicians can handle some of these situations, including managing some of their own emotional reactions and applying non-confrontational responses to challenging patient encounters. Dr. Daniel Alford is professor of medicine Associate Dean of Continuing Medical Education and Director of the Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, or Scope of Pain, program at Boston University School of Medicine. Dan, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. We have worked closer together on NEGM Knowledge Plus, and one thing that has really struck me as I've been working on this and also hearing from clinicians is the amount of anxiety and dread that clinicians experience when they're trying to manage pain. And I think especially when chronic opioid prescriptions are involved. I think some clinicians just feel like there's no evidence and there's a high risk of harm with these medications. We should probably never use opioids to manage chronic pain, perhaps with the exception of cancer-related pain. Dan, what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? I've certainly heard that as well, that there's no evidence supporting the use of opioids for chronic pain. However, I'll tell you what we know and what we don't know. What we do know is that there are high-quality, short-term studies showing that opioids are better than placebo, but only up to six months. So what we don't know is what happens after six months. There have been some small studies that have looked at longer-term outcomes, and they show about 44% of individuals treated with an opioid versus placebo get 50% pain relief. There was a recent study that got a lot of press, and that was a randomized clinical trial that compared opioids versus non-opioids for musculoskeletal pain. And they found no difference between opioids and non-opioids. However, there are some limitations around generalizability because they excluded patients who were already on opioids, so they weren't entered into the study, and about 90% of individuals who would qualify for the study declined. So it sounds like their feeling is that there is some data out there, but uh, certainly not a lot of data for long-term opioids. So is there a role for opioid analgesics in chronic pain? Yeah, so I believe that some patients would benefit from opioids. However, I think there are some things to keep in mind. So first, that opioid prescribing absolutely needs to be more judicious. We have to lose our opiocentric approach to treating chronic pain. I think opioids should never be the first choice, and we should try to minimize the dose of opioids that we're prescribing, and that whenever we prescribe an opioid, it should be really part of a multimodal approach, realizing that that's not always so easy, um, that we don't always have other modalities available to us or they're not paid for, but we should do the best that we can. Well, let me be the devil's advocate here. So you said there is some evidence for opioid analgesics in the short term, not a lot of evidence for the long term, but we certainly have evidence uh, for the harms of opioids. So some clinicians might reasonably say, well, pain won't kill my patient, but opioids might. So how do you respond to skeptics who say that they'd rather see a patient in pain than see the patient dead? Yeah, so my patients say to me, 
that while pain won't kill them, they would rather be dead than to continue suffering from severe chronic pain because of the disability that it causes and all the suffering that it causes. We also know that there's a higher risk of both fatal and non-fatal suicide attempts in patients with chronic pain. So people who are suffering, life isn't so great. So while pain won't kill them by itself, I think sometimes people feel that life isn't worth living. That is a good point. And as clinicians, I think we want to be compassionate. We want to treat our patients' pain. But many clinicians feel that managing chronic pain is really draining. Patients don't get better. They continue to complain about their pain at every visit and so on. So as someone whose practice includes a lot of patients who have chronic pain, what is your advice to the clinician who who's listening to this podcast? How can they avoid feeling despair when managing these patient scenarios? I'm not sure I can make it completely go away. And while managing chronic pain is not always clinically satisfying, in fact, sometimes it's the opposite, I think I can give some tips to make it less painful for the clinician. And part of it is setting realistic expectations. So if your expectation is that you're going to achieve something you can't achieve, then it's going to be quite frustrating. And I think we need to be realistic about what we can achieve, that we're not going to be able to cure the person's chronic pain. And not only should we think about that, but we should tell our patients. And sometimes the patient's family needs to also have realistic expectations. Now, the other thing to remember is while acute pain is a life-sustaining symptom that resolves over time, chronic pain is a totally different animal. It really, as far as I know, has no benefit to us as a species. And it persists despite the injury healing, the surgery healing, it persists. And it really is much more of a multidimensional process in some ways very similar to other chronic diseases that we treat. However, while I would say we should approach chronic pain like other chronic conditions, there are some important differences. So unlike a patient with diabetes, let's say, patients with pain may have very strong feelings about what works and what doesn't work for them. And as I had mentioned, they may have unrealistic expectations like you need to fix my pain right now. Whereas our patients with diabetes, we're really treating them in some ways to prevent things from happening 10 years from now or 20 years from now. So it's not so urgent. There isn't that feeling of urgency. Obviously, opioids have a street value. Um, They go for about a dollar a milligram on the street. And so there may be a tendency for a patient to take some and sell some to support their income. And things like insulin don't have street values, although with the recent difficulty for some of our patients getting access to insulin, who knows? As an endocrinologist, I can definitely say that insulin is very expensive. But um, I also think in diabetes, I have a very clear target. I look at glycemic control by whichever measure, perhaps hemoglobin A1c, and that makes it somewhat easier for me. And it seems like that's perhaps not as obvious in pain management. You bring up a very important difference. You're right. So both the measurement of benefit as well as harm are very subjective, which is very unlike much of what we do in primary care and general health care. And so how do we measure benefits? So we're interested in pain relief, functional improvement, improvement in quality of life. So how do you measure those things? And how do you measure them objectively? And if you could measure them, how much improvement is enough to say, you know, this treatment is working? And we don't have an equivalent A1C or a blood pressure. So that makes it more challenging. And the same thing on the flip side, which is harm. And we look for out-of-control behavior. Is the person taking the medication in a way that could cause them harm? Well, how much out-of-control behavior is enough to say, this isn't working, this is too dangerous for you? And it's kind of weighing the subjective benefit 
as well as subjective harm. So it makes it different than other chronic conditions that we treat and makes it more challenging. So realizing these challenges, how do you actually put this advice into practice? Can you maybe describe a typical visit or a typical approach to your patient who comes in with chronic pain? Well, firstly, let me say that managing chronic pain is very time-consuming. However, we do a lot of time-consuming things in general practice or primary care practice. And how do we accomplish it? Well, we accomplish it by involving the entire team. Right, Converting somebody from an oral agent to insulin is very time-consuming, and if you relied on me as a primary care physician to do all that needs to be done to get our patient up and running, it wouldn't go very well. So I involve the nurse, the pharmacist, to help me. Well, the same thing needs to apply for chronic pain, especially when you're prescribing opioids. We can't completely rely totally on the prescriber. And I think so much emphasis has been on, oh, we need to educate the prescribers. No, we need to educate the entire team. So a typical follow-up for me would be I'm asking, how's their pain currently? What's the worst it's been? What's the best it's been in the last 24 hours? And then I ask over the last week, what's your pain been on average? But I also focus on how has it interfered with your enjoyment of life and your general activity? And that's all part of the PEG scale. P for pain, E for enjoyment of life, and G for general activity. So I ask people to Unfortunately, we're asking them to rate it on a 10-point scale, which is very arbitrary. But for an individual patient, you should be able to follow it over time. It's hard to compare one patient to another patient because one person's 8 is someone else's 10 is someone else's 6. So without an objective measure, how do you actually decide that you're successful in managing the patient's symptoms? So what I like to do is use the acronym or mnemonic SMART or SMART goals. And SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Action-Oriented, Realistic, and Time-Sensitive. So what do I mean? So it, it's, to me, not helpful for the patient to say, I just want to feel better. Okay, that's the goal. Well, how do you measure that? And is that time-sensitive and so forth? So what I really want to know is, what do you hope to achieve? Well, I would like to go shopping twice a week, which requires going three blocks down the road. Well, that's specific and measurable and action-oriented and realistic potentially for a patient and time-sensitive. And I can ask them at the follow-up visit, how did it go? Were you able to do that shopping? And um, did you have difficulty walking those blocks? It also makes the visit more enjoyable because you're becoming less focused on, well, tell me on this 10-point scale where you sit and much more on how's life been? Like, what have you been able to do? And how does that compare to what you had hoped at the last visit? It also helps your documentation so that you're documenting what the person has been able to achieve that's very specific. In a way, these are goals that we use in a lot of chronic disease management. Uh, again, as an endocrinologist, I see a lot of diabetes, and a smart goal that I may, might set with my patient might be, in the next 14 days, I'm going to take my daily insulin for at least 13 of the days. And then that's something that I can very much ask the patient about when I see them back a few weeks later or when someone else in the healthcare team who's looking after, who's helping me look after this patient, sees the patient in a couple of weeks. How about in your visits, these monitoring requirements that we have? How do you incorporate those? So to monitor patients using objective tools, we're looking at urine drug testing and pill counts and checking the state prescription drug monitoring program. So that's part of the visit too. It's reviewing those findings, those objective findings. So if there's an unexpected urine result or if I'm finding something on the prescription drug monitoring program that I didn't expect, I discuss it with the patient and I do it in a non-judgmental way and I keep it open-ended. Um, it's not as if I'm trying to catch the patient doing something wrong. It's 
I'm identifying some behaviors that may put the patient at higher risk. So I want to identify those, and I want to have a conversation with the patient about them. Now, if the visit is taking too long, since we have a limited amount of time in our clinical practices, um, sometimes I'll dedicate the entire session to pain-related issues. Or if there's some other pressing issue, I'll schedule the patient for a follow-up where the visit will be completely focused on pain. And we won't talk about routine healthcare maintenance and colorectal cancer screening, but we'll focus on pain. And it could be a very short visit, but it's very focused. And the patient understands that that's what the visit's for. Now, I had mentioned all of these monitoring strategies, and I think it's really critical that we as a profession don't get into the practice of, okay, the agreement was signed, check. The urine drug test was sent, check. We need to really think of these things as tools to keep our patients safe, and we need to keep it patient-centric. So they need to understand that we're doing these things. I'm sending the urine drug test because, you know, obviously some people who use substances may not feel comfortable telling me about their substance use, and I can sometimes find out about it through a urine drug test and have that conversation about, I identified this unexpected finding, and let's have a conversation about it because it's putting your health at risk. You mentioned these objective measurements that we get, and some of the situations that we describe in the NEGM Knowledge Plus questions seem to cause a lot of emotions in uh, clinicians, as we can tell from the feedback that we receive. One of these cases is a patient who admits to taking an extra tablet of their pain medication to help deal with a stressful situation. And a common response that we get from the clinicians is, well, the patient broke the contract, you need to fire the patient. But that is actually not what we recommend in the question. Can you tell us a little bit about how you handle that situation? Sure. I've heard about individuals feeling that way when I've done teaching around safer opioid prescribing. And really, I think it would be a rare instance where you would need to fire a patient. So first, let me just say that I wouldn't call these things contracts because they're really not legal documents. They're agreements. And the agreement should be bidirectional and it really spells out how to take these medications safely, what the expectations are for the patient to take the medication exactly as prescribed, perhaps, and for the prescriber, that I will make sure that you get refills in a timely manner. So I wouldn't call them contracts, but I would call them agreements. And the bottom line is we're using these tools, urine drug testing agreements and so forth, to identify worrisome behaviors. And there will become a point where, even in the setting of benefit, you're so worried about the way the patient is taking the medication or unable to adhere to safely taking the medication that you need to make a change. And that change could be tapering the opioid, again, even in the setting of benefit. But what if the patient lies to you? The patient in our case that I just described is taking more than prescribed. And in another case, we describe a patient where there is abundant evidence that the patient is actually not taking their opioid analgesic, even though they say that they are taking the medication. Isn't the trust gone? Uh, You need to fire that patient, right? No. So first, let me say that patients who develop an addiction, and some do, they lie to themselves, they lie to their families, and they will lie to you. But it's important for us to remember that they have a new problem and that they need help. And that help comes from addiction specialty services or getting them into referring them to specialty care. I will also say that I have lots of patients who lie to me, including my patients with diabetes or hypertension, and they say, yeah, I'm taking my medication exactly as prescribed, and yeah, I'm exercising every day, and I'm dental flossing every night. And when I know they're not telling me the truth, I don't take it personally. So I wouldn't take it personally when someone with cocaine use doesn't tell you about their cocaine use. Again, they've got a new problem that needs to be addressed. No reason to 
discharge them. We're really talking about discharging the medication or firing the medication. So if the opioid, in your clinical opinion, is too risky, then it's time to fire the opioid. No need to fire the patient. I like that a lot. Um, and certainly, sometimes my patients are admitted to the hospital and we start to administer the insulin doses that I've prescribed and they bottom out and it makes it painfully obvious that they actually were not taking the insulin as prescribed. But how about when the urine test shows unexpected findings? For example, as there's cocaine in the urine or maybe there's evidence of a non-prescribed opioid. How would you approach that situation? Yeah, so again, I think it's important to be non-judgmental. You're not catching the person doing something wrong. And so the first thing I do is I would say it should be timely. So you should get back to the patient within a reasonable amount of time so that you want to respond to your finding. But you should also be specific in terms of your concerns. So I'm concerned about how cocaine use might put you at higher risk for misusing your opioid and what action you're going to take. So as opposed to just saying, you know, I feel like this is too risky, we're going to need to stop it, that doesn't usually go very well. But if you're very specific about what behaviors you've identified that make you concerned and what changes you're going to make based on that, it sometimes goes better. Not perfectly well, but sometimes better. And when a patient is still disagreeing with your plan, I think it's important to say, you know, time out. What did you hear me say? Why do you think I want to make this change? And if they say, oh, it's because you don't believe I have terrible pain, then they really didn't hear what you had to say. But if they say, oh, you think it's causing me more harm than good, well, at least they heard you, and you can agree to disagree, but at least they heard you. And I think it's important to make sure the patient has heard you. These are really challenging conversations to have, and many of us would get pretty angry or frustrated. How do you stay so calm during patient interactions? How do you care for the patient and continue to be compassionate in these very challenging situations? Well, I remind myself that the patient is the one who's suffering. And they're probably not just suffering in your office, but they're suffering all day and sometimes all night. And so it's really the patient who's suffering. I shouldn't feel like I'm suffering by taking care of them. And I think when you set realistic expectations, it really does help. You're not banging your head against the wall in frustration, but you're realizing what your limitations are in terms of helping this patient. But I will say it's not always so easy. And I'm reminded of how I feel during the holiday season where I have patients who will say to me, Dr. Alford, you're the best doctor. Don't ever leave. Don't ever retire. Promise me you'll never leave. My patients with diabetes, hypertension, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm thinking, wow, maybe I am a good doctor. I'm probably feeling better about myself than I should. But then patients who have chronic pain on opioids who will say the exact same thing, Dr. Alford, don't leave. You're the only one who understands me. Please don't leave. I'm starting to feel a little bit like maybe I'm being scammed. And I need to kind of do a self-check on why do I feel different and don't act upon those feelings because there's no reason for me to feel differently among those two patients. Those are some really great insights and I think very helpful advice for a reasonable and practical approach as we manage patients with chronic pain or with chronic opioid prescriptions. Are there any final take-home points, Dan, that you can think of? I would say that there is no way to make these challenging encounters completely easy because they are complicated, and partly they're complicated because of things that we talked about, that we're dealing with subjective measures of benefit and harm. We're dealing with a medication that carries a lot of risk, but it also may benefit some of our patients. So we certainly don't want to withhold it from everybody because someone may actually benefit. And so we just need to do the best job that we can with the tools that we have available to us. And I'm hopeful that at some point in the near future, that we'll have many more options for our patients with chronic pain and be able to offer them 
comprehensive multimodal pain treatment maybe, or there'll be some new medications that will be available to us. So I'm hopeful. I know there's a lot of time, energy, and money being spent on improving pain care. And so hopefully this will be a thing of the past and we'll have lots of options for our patients. But in the meantime, I do think that opioids can benefit some of our patients, and I think we can do it. We do a lot of complicated things, and we can do this. We just need to do it carefully. I've had colleagues come up to me and say, you know, how do you know the patient's pain is real? And I would say we should believe the patient's pain complaint 100% of the time because there really are no imaging studies or tests that we can use that say, okay, this, this patient's pain is real and this one isn't. So I would believe the patient 100% of the time, and I would argue that there's 0% risk in doing that. And how can I say that? Well, just because you believe the patient's pain is real and severe does not mean that opioids are indicated. That's where our clinical acumen, our judgment comes in. That is, for this particular patient, with their risk profile and their pain complaint, what's the appropriate treatment? It may be opioids or it may not be opioids, but again, take some pressure off yourself, believe the patient's pain as being real, but then decide on what the best treatment is based on that patient's risk profile. And I think that takes some pressure off us. Wonderful. Opioids are still part of armamentarium, but we need to be more judicious and prescribe them in a safer manner. Thank you so much, Dan, for coming today. Thanks for having me. Speaking of the patient's point of view, on the next episode of Curbside Consults, We'll hear from a longtime patient on the experience of being a patient with chronic pain. I would again like to thank Dr. Alfred for joining us in conversation about how clinicians can manage their bias in dealing with patients taking opioids for pain management. For more information about the free NEJM Knowledge Plus Pain Management and Opioids module, go to knowledgeplus.nejm.org. For more information about Scope of Pain, go to scopeofpain.org. Curbside Consults is a production of the NEJM Group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360. Our production team for this episode includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, Kathy Stern, and Josette Akresh-Gonzalez. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnevik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the NEJM.org pages. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Krista Nottage signing off.